Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Time is a flat circle. And we are all stuck in it. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are here to discuss the final episode, part six, season four, HBO's True Detective Night Country. And later on, the one and only Jodie Foster. I guess we haven't really said her name that much on this podcast. Well, because we use character names on this podcast. This is true. Yeah, we always remember to call her Danvers and yeah. not Jodie Foster. Liz Danvers, Elizabeth Danvers, will be dropping by our very own podcast to talk about the big reveal of the episode and talk about filming this great show. So stay tuned for that. But first, we're going to do a recap. Spoilers ahead, um, all you West Coast folks, if this is in your feed and you haven't watched the episode yet, bail out now. Or maybe you're weird like that and you just want to, <laughs> you just want to be spoiled before you, like reading the uh, Wikipedia of a horror movie before you see it. I it is that. spooky, um, so I yeah. can understand the impulse. Anyway, consider yourself warned. Uh, so it's a dark and stormy night and Navarro and Danvers break into the ice caves. They discover an underground lab and a missing scientist. Oh, trapped. <laughs> Raymond Clark is interrogated and reveals that the scientists in a group killed Annie Kay. I don't understand. The project could have saved so many lives. They stabbed her 32 times. Clark commits suicide by running into the blizzard, and Navarro and Danvers wrestle their own demons on the ice. But as the storm lifts, they discover a clue on a door hatch that unlocks the mystery. We weren't asking the right question. 
The question isn't who killed Annie Kay, but who knows who killed her. Danvers and Navarro confront the killers, the cleaning staff, and learn how they pulled it off. You know, if there was a murder to solve, that is. We just swung by to inform you that the forensics came back. Cause of death is a slab avalanche. This case is officially closed. I thought you'd want to know, seeing as they were your employers and all. And Navarro disappears, but first takes down the mining company. So those reports of sightings of her, they may be true? Well, this is Ennis. Nobody ever really leaves. Well, it was it was kind of the town all along. Yeah. Like in a kind of great way, right? Yeah. Like, yeah the, true, was... the truest detective was the friends we made along the way. Yeah, 100%. Um, are we satisfied? I didn't see it coming. No. I didn't see it coming. I think satisfied is a is a complicated question. Right. Ooh, right. say more. I I love sisters doing it for themselves. Mm-hmm. I love vigilante justice. I think there is something. <laughs> I'm just gonna clip that and yeah. like. <laughs> Don't use that against me. recording of you saying that to the police. <laughs> Do not yeah. use my words against yeah. me. <laughs> I absolutely are you stand the Matt man? <laughs> uh, I will say it strained credulity a little bit. Just the whole. The whole ending. I guess we should say, basically, the native women in the town who worked in Salal and yeah. who cleaned it and cut their were hair, mistreated, ignored, were mistreated, ignored, yeah. banded together and stormed in and humiliated and, and some amazing, you know, not to kink shame, but really sort of <laughs> humiliated these men, stripped them naked, took them out to the tundra and just left them there and uh-huh. said, you know, if Annie wants them to live, they'll live. If Annie wants them dead, right. they'll die. And guess what? They die. Annie is embodiment of this sort of bigger earth spirit. Yeah, like yes. that now she is yes. part of that spirit. And yeah. she, Annie, who in fact was killed by the scientists. Yes, who was killed by these men. These yeah, And yeah. all of them. Yeah. The yes. Which there I... It was one after the other. It was, it was a murder on the Orient, Orient Express kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I found that such a fascinatingly complex thing because on the one hand, in the immediate, that this work is can only be done by further destroying this town. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you think bigger, bigger, bigger picture, if these scientists were right, we're talking about, like, cancer cures. We're talking about millions, if not billions of people. Obviously, mm-hmm. we, uh, no, you can't do, you can't kill people now to save people later. Like, well, the, you know. But, is that that not, is the argument of uh, the villain in Dan Brown's Inferno. <laughs> but, which you could go through. Which, which is so actually know. on yeah. my bookshelf. Right. I, the thing is, I thought that was actually really, that was probably one of the strongest uh, parts of the episode for me because that is such an American way, sacrificing people in the moment for progress. And that's slavery, right? right. Taking mm-hmm. people right. in the right. present moment for, you know, product and to progress and to get more and more and more and get closer to this amorphous thing that will well, say— Well, and for the, the promise of, like, an uncertain future, and, too, yes, right? that like, will be better for—that they yeah. say it's going to be better for everybody, but is right. it actually better for anybody? Right. And for the people who are harmed in the present, it's awful and terrible. So I thought that that sort of parallel to, yeah. you know, we talked a lot, I guess, at the beginning of this season about, you know, the original sin of America, you know, the white people versus the indigenous people, the native people. So having the women sort of rally back and murder all these men who were doing this thing that could potentially maybe benefit the world, but completely decimates the town and is, mm-hmm. is awful. I thought that was actually one of the better parts of the episode. And, and yeah, and there's also like a, a neat mirroring between, you know, Annie's murder at the hands of this cabal of men and then like 
the like her community coming too. So it's you know there's there's two group murders. Yeah, two. Yeah, two group murders. And I think it was really crucial that we had an episode open with Annie Kay alive and helping to birth this baby and clearly positioning her at a very necessary center of this, you know, mistreated, under, you know, resourced community that even, like, I don't know what this group of women, how much they knew about what research the scientists were doing or, like, what Annie had destroyed or not. The fact of the matter is they just robbed them of this vital person in their world and did it callously and, and got away with it forever. And, you know, and I think that, do we understand what the sort of breaking point was, like why they decided to do it after all these years? I think it was, wasn't it that— Because they had found out They had recently? found out because yeah. the mop water, it falls, and then it oh, sinks that's, course, into right, the ice cave. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and she finds the device. And she that's finds right, the device what, yeah. that killed Annie. Yeah, so then they were like, right. this is where— Because so, she was like, I didn't know for six years. Because yeah. there were these so various— it's, spe- it's specifically because of Annie. Yeah, exactly, right. Or because they finally found out, like— yeah conclusively who killed her. I did notice, I don't remember if it was this episode or last week, but like when Navarro's in a laundromat, the woman who's missing part of her fingers, Mm -hmm. she is like kind of walks by in the background and they kind of, and she's like in focus. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, and then then that was just like visually them being like, let's put her back in your head because it had been a while. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's look, it's a big secret for a lot of people to hold. Mm -hmm. But it's a really like deep, deep, you know, we're fucked if anyone tells kind of secrets. So maybe that was enough to bind it to them and they, they didn't tell anyone. Although toward the end of the episode, they're not, they're like, whatever. We don't care that you <laughs> It's are. kind of amazing yeah, how yeah. quickly they're like, yeah, we did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we did it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what, that it was the thing that really is. It was an oral if I did it. It was yeah. like, well, yes. I mean, were we to be involved? Uh, Very OJ it might have, coding. yeah, it might have yeah. gone like this. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, which also feels uh, the the way that they Danvers isn't really like invited into the sisterhood, but she is, you know, given some uh, some guardianship over the secret, and like yes. they're trusting her uh, yeah. to keep it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which I think is enough for gruff, mean white woman in that community. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she has helped bring some sort of justice by the lack of it. Yes. Yes. And I will say it's kind of fitting and kind of nice that the fake excuse that Kate McKittrick came up with, like, oh, it was a slap avalanche, actually exonerates the women who murdered them. I don't think Kate knew shit about shit in terms of who killed the scientists. She just didn't want them in that cave. She just didn't want them in that cave. Well, and it, uh, I mean... Joke's on you, Kate. Although there is still... The women say they didn't leave the tongue behind. Yes. Which is that ever answered? Is there just, there actually is maybe some supernatural force. Well, there is a moment when Danvers is looking at the floor at where the tongue was found and seems sort of like mesmerized by it. And then mm-hmm. Navarro kind of interrupts her and then we don't go back to that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we just find out sort of at the end that like the group of women are, I don't think she she the, 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 she was being like cheeky when she was like, that wasn't us. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, cheeky. <laughs> Tongue in Tongue Oh, there we go. Whoops, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that is Isa Lopez being like, who knows what this explanation is. Well, because is, the, you know? it's still like, you know, we see them abandon the men and they're naked and everything. But like, does that explain why they like claw their eyes out? Does that explain nope. why their eardrums mm-hmm. are burst? Does no. that explain why they're in one big clump when they die? Like right. there are still... There's still elements of it that point to some kind of magic. I was trying to game that out in my head. It's like, okay, so they run into the night. It's dark. They get disoriented. They don't even know how to get back, which direction their clothes are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, they've had guns pointed at them. Maybe when they start to get very, very cold, they start kind of huddling for warmth and Together. it kind of turns yeah. into a sort of like Hieronymus Bosch-esque, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Also, some of it was just for style for the show, yeah, so you know. We don't um, have to be too precious. But no, but I think you're right, Hillary, that like basically they say like we're going to send them out. Their clothes are back here. 
if she wants to take them, she can. And it seems like maybe she wanted to take them and do have them really suffer before she did, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, as uh, something of a of a warning to all others who might transgress in that way. So mm-hmm. I liked how it sort of operatically fit the themes of the show, this reveal. But I also kind of think, I wish that some of these women in this group had been a little more present in the show. Yes, that was... You think that the show is just too coy about them? Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert for Mayor of Easttown, but, like, it's a bit like Julian Nicholson's son. Mm -hmm. You're like, he was in, like, a few scenes, guys. Like, that feels a little, like, cheating. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that these shows are not built like an Agatha Christie. We're not supposed to be watching trying to figure out who did it and all the answers are in front of us. But, like, Mm -hmm. I guess, but didn't Lopez say that, like— That you would be able to figure it out, or not necessarily that you would be able to figure it out, but that, like— the answer is not hidden, that, like, it is possible to figure it out by just paying attention. And I think that's fair. I think that it's possible. It's possible if you think that we do see that this is a community that takes care of itself, that Mm -hmm. they're self-reliant, that they are there for each other with, you know, the births and the stillbirth funerals. We caught on to the fact that there was some element of revenge to the scientist's death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So we can see it, but I do, again, it didn't feel random and it didn't feel unjustified, but I do understand, I do feel similarly to Richard in that I would have liked to know these women a little bit more if they're the reason. I feel like we spent more time with the scientists than with But then that does give you, like, the Westworld problem where it's like, this mystery is easily solved from watching at the very beginning, and then when the show gets to its big reveal, you're like, yeah. Yeah. I I knew that. I guess I want my cake and to eat it too. Yeah. You want it to to be surprising but satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. But logical. Yes, but also logical. Was it logical that someone in, like, negative, I don't even know what temperatures, could fall into, I don't know, how cold water? And then just, like, be fine. (laughs) Like, wear a blanket After a a few hours. Like, that felt like I, because when she fell into the water, when Danvers fell into the water, I was like, that's it. That's an interesting way for her to go, but I think that might, that would have to be it. And some very, like, beautifully shot. That was gorgeous. As teased in the uh, opening credits. Mm. Exactly. Look, I don't want to be cinema sins about it. Like, okay, whatever. (laughs) She got to her in time. She got her warm enough. It it was fine. We had talked last week about worrying that Navarro was going to die because what does she really have. Her sister's gone. She's feeling this entity calling to her, and uh-huh. it seemed to almost do that. But then, you know, and maybe, maybe we've seen this in things before, but I like the way it was handled here, that she had to save someone in order to save herself, you know? And I thought that that was kind of a nice way to put Navarro and Danvers together without having them become, like, the best of friends, because uh-huh. the, the, the season ends with Navarro. I mean, what was the... What did, what did you guys make of that ending? Where, like, she's on the porch. What, what was she really, or was that sort of representative... I don't think that we were supposed to. When she was walking out into the tundra, I feel like, first I was like, wait, is she pulling a Julia? But then I was no. like, wait, no, that's just a beautiful shot. I can understand why they would have yeah. that. It's just yeah. pretty to look at. So I think that she literally skipped town and got out. Because remember, people know that she killed Wheeler. Like, that is people that we haven't seen. That information's out there. That yeah. information is out there, so it's probably not a safe place for her to be, really, at this point, especially now that the mine is in trouble and is probably going to shut down, which it ends up shutting down. So I saw that as, you know what, they were out of Ennis. That was not, because that wasn't Jody. it didn't mm-hmm. look like Jody Foster's. They were on a lake somewhere. Yeah. I think um, they were re- back further south in Alaska, maybe just like having a It could be someplace away. where it's maybe not night. Yeah, where it's not night all the time. I yeah. was like, oh, they got out, if only for briefly for uh, Danvers, but Navarro maybe for good. Yeah. And they are together at, in a gorgeous place that isn't Ennis. Yeah. Isn't and that that's nice? what I took. Isn't that nice? It was crazy just having any daylight on the show. <laughs> Wasn't it? It's like, that's what they actually look like. Yeah. yeah. That's what the landscape looks like. I mean, I know yeah. it was Iceland, but like, it was, I don't know. I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Something else. I know that we were 
we were so worried about Navarro and these visions and and her supernatural tendencies and whether that would lead to her doom, but it actually sort of led to a homecoming, a really important moment with her learning her native name and that I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. Say, that really did sort of touch my heart and I... I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, no, it's it's meaningful, and, and the meaning of her name also is ob- obviously feels very like weighted with meaning, and it is return of the sun after a long darkness, which you know is is what will presumably happen in Ennis yeah. someday. <laughs> well, who's to say if but... we're not in fact in nighttime forever in hell? Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that's it's a it's a nice moment. It brings her arc to a, a nice end, it takes her kind of full circle, um, and yeah, makes you hope that whatever's in store for her in the future, there will be some light. It is in some senses what she went there to find. And then mm-hmm. when she finds it, she can leave again. Yes. You know, and go out back into the world and not be haunted by so many things. And it also sort of was helpful in a literal way to getting to the bottom of the Salal murders because once she was able to introduce herself to the native woman with her native name, that was the... Right. That's that was the, the bridge. That's the missing piece. That's the missing p- b- uh, piece. And then they were like, oh, we trust you. We can share this story with you right. and let That's you true, into yeah. this community. So it actually ended up having real consequences, positive consequences on the case itself. So yeah, I no, thought we, it never, a, we never would have gotten to that point. We never would have gotten the answers without that. Yeah, so I thought that was uh, really well done and a nice sort of bow on that sometimes really scary storyline with Navarro. And Pryor is what? He's okay, kind of? I mean, he's... I mean, I think that, well, Rose says to him, you know, when they put the bodies in the sea, she's like, you think the worst part's over, about to be over. She's like, it's not, and it is horrible every day. And so, like... How many men has Rose killed? Yeah. Well, that's a good old... Over how many question. centuries? That's yeah. True Detective Season 5. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Who really is Rose? I mean, when when was she a professor? Like, you know, um, Pryor's about as good as one can be on a True Detective show. Yes. Like, he's broken and did a horrible thing but at least he's has a family and I will say uh, thank you to Issa Lopez of uh, having Pryor clean up the blood in his tidy whities as one would do naturally <laughs> well, of course yeah yeah how else in your you know you your, don't want to leave evidence on you your clothes I also liked a little bit of suspense like that this sort of like uh oh there's a tooth in the wall and I, and I have to like cover it up because Leah yeah. just showed up like like a, a little bit of sort of uh, a different kind of show or movie where there's kind of a scramble to cover up a crime. Like, mm-hmm. I appreciated it that she added, that Lopez added that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also have to wonder if she's um, an Elena Ferrante fan or a Olivia Coleman fan because Navarro's mother peels oranges in one long strip. In one long much strip. like in The Lost Daughter. Oh, which looks like a circle, too. <laughs> which is a spiral. Yeah. No, the oranges thing is, yeah, I, lots of little, like, callbacks to things we'd seen earlier in the mm-hmm. season. It really did feel like a sort of grand vision. It doesn't, it, it, it didn't feel by the end that Lopez was like making it up as she went, like each episode, where she wrote each episode. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there was clearly a grand vision. Yes, here. it's tight. It's it's yeah. constructed with thought, which is yeah. nice to see and not yeah. always the case in a yeah. show like this. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and, and even for True Detective, kind of admirably abstract in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's not just the tongue thing, but it's sort of like even the sort of thematic swirl of it. Like there are different sort of arguments and themes sort of mingling with each other and but nothing is sort of too neatly tied in a bow and like I, I and we you know we we get some justice in that the mining thing shuts down but the show is not saying that it's all that oh yay the heroes won you know no. forever it's 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 a I like its sort of ambivalence and ambiguity mm-hmm. and you can even see that in like you know when Clark is telling them the story of what purportedly happened to Annie he leaves out the very important detail that he is the one who actually did kill her in the end right yes right. 
Like there is there is still kind of uh, the show is still taking pains to differentiate between the stories that people are telling and this objective truth, which we do get. I mean, at least we think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can we talk about Clark for a bit and Clark's death, too? Mm -hmm. So we're expected to believe that he got free and just was like, I'm out. (laughs) I'm just going to go into the into the tundra. Or did Navarro bring him out and kill him in a rage? I think Navarro has a problem not killing these guys who did a bad thing that she's mad at, you know? Yeah, but that was not the clearest to me because it's like, but that's the case. Like That's that's, the case. Why would you murder him when he has the case? But it turns out, well, I guess because Clark doesn't know who who killed the men. He assumes it was the ghost of any case. So, like, it's not like, you know, inadvertently Navarro protected the women who did it because otherwise Clark would have said something. So I, I don't know. I yeah. mean, he's clearly not all there. No. Like, I don't think you could be. After it's that. not. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not maybe so out of line to think that he would just have had it and just go into the and, you know, he's being, you know, driven crazy by like these voices Tortured, and maybe by Kay's screams. Right. And whatever, whatever uh, actual spirit there is out there on the yeah. tundra. And so, yeah, maybe he did. It's it's maybe not the best uh the best ending for him. I have another yeah. bone to pick with Clark um, <laughs> and how that sort of went down. Totally fine that he's like in the caves or whatever. And then he could have probably murdered Navarro with the fire extinguisher, smacking her across the head. Mm-hmm. Seemed yeah. pretty hard. Yeah. Then he's dragging her. And I know that we established this in the first scene with Navarro that she can beat up any guy that she wants to. But to cut from... Navarro being dragged on the ground and then Jody running in and then Navarro is pinning him down and beating the shit out of him. I'm like, <laughs> I would have liked to see the fight choreography that went sure. into the moment where she <laughs> came to, got him on the ground right. and was in like in charge. She was just almost knocked. She was knocked out. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's fair. That was a little convenient. Yeah, I yeah. can I can accept that. I mean, as convenient as as Danvers somehow surviving that fall. That yeah. she, she's pretty deep under that water. Yeah. Um, and we but do. She get, loves swimming. Yeah. Jodie Foster loves swimming. We know that. Yeah. Although right, speaking right, of ambiguity, right, I guess right. we still don't entirely know how Holden died. Like it's a no. car accident. Mm-mm. It was it her fault? Was it, it somebody else's fault? It seems like no, because she walks out sort of dra- mm-hmm. like draped in a blanket of some. But kind. she said mm-hmm. he was trapped in the car, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Was he calling for me? Was he scared? You know, whatever." And was like, it her husband? But, but I like that. I like that they didn't. It doesn't say need more to be that, too because I yeah. think that her giving the full exposition of what happened in that moment would have been bad writing. Yeah. Well, it's like because, why would she be telling Navarro exactly. this? Now? Like yeah, Navarro exactly. already knows. Yeah, there's no reason. I think just using that sort of shorthand of like you know what happened, but I just wonder about him in that car. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's enough, and I think that the what they did, what the show did smartly was like I got a little bit nervous toward the beginning that like okay like. Navarro has this grief and this anger and Danvers has this grief and this anger. It's a little too t- close together and like whatever. I just thought that there was going to be some big, big cathartic healing moment about Holden or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 that's that's not involved in this. This mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. something that she's sad about. And both of these women are struggling to figure out how to be alive, yeah. yes. you know, and uh, and they do with each with, through each other, which I, you know, which is nice. Mm-hmm. That being said, I, I agree with that. Uh, not to counter that, but... I did appreciate that we got a little glimpse of like uh, Leah and Danvers having a burger at the end. So yes. having like that, yes. quote, like, but it wasn't, but that wasn't overdone. You know, no, it, it wasn't was simple overdone. stuff. It was like little things. It's a like, little thing being like, yeah. oh, they are, they are ultimately okay. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and like maybe are going to find a way to a new closeness. Yes. And in the present After tense of the show, Leah comes back home being like, well, my mom told me to be here for New Year's. So mm-hmm. where is she? And it just kind of ends with her leaving a voicemail being like, I hope you come back or don't don't die out there. I'm glad that that Lopez spared us the tearful it doesn't reconciliation. Have to be more, you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be bigger than that. The yeah. idea of coming back was such a theme of 
this episode because that's also what Quavik says to mm-hmm. Evangeline, to Navarro as well, that you can go out there into the distance, into danger, but if you come back, that's what matters. Well, but then you so also than... have, you know, at the end, Danvers saying, this is Ennis, nobody ever really leaves, and, like, that's kind of sweet, but it's also very ominous. Very, yeah. yeah. It's like, you yeah. cannot, you can't die, you can't leave, like, right. you are always going to be, like, haunting this place. Yeah. Yeah. You, and that's that's horrible. Then yeah. it's then it's you know it's purgatory. It's not even hell. Yeah, I, I think I like I like all that sort of. Um, I thought the mo- the end with the music and the, the filming was beautiful and and moving in a way to see these people not in at least immediate distress. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right, Hillary. Like <laughs> there's some ominous conclusions as well. Speaking of the conclusions, I guess uh, having talked through it, and this is one of those things where it. In some ways, it felt satisfying the moment. In some ways, it didn't feel satisfying the moment. After talking about it, I actually think I feel better about certain aspects of the ending in terms of the Native women coming together and killing the Salal men. But now other things are sort of sticking in my craw. Read the fact that we just never saw Connolly again. We never saw... Yeah, although there are also things I think that are wrapped up in a, in a neater way that I would have necessarily thought. Like, I think it's pretty easy for, you know, the mine funds Salal, so therefore Salal is going to, like, uh, fudge the pollution numbers. But it's, I think, um, slightly more interesting and less expected to have Clark say, well, actually, the pollution helping is helping us. our work. Like, mm-hmm, I don't think right. that that's something like, you know, science. That pollution is slavery. That pollution is imperialism. <laughs> yeah. That is the pollution. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can't get over yeah. that metaphor. You're literally on your I've, pulpit right I, now. <laughs> the way I'd be writing a thesis about this in college. <laughs> Wait, can we talk about the music, which we haven't really talked about? No. We really should talk about the music because we get something that we probably should have noticed with from the Billie Eilish of it all, of the contemporary cool song, there were a lot of moments of sort of these deep, scary interpolations of like pretty contemporary cool pop we didn't, songs. We didn't talk about the bummer version of Save Tonight. The, the closed, bummer version of Save Tonight. We didn't talk about five, that. Which we didn't is talk so about funny. the bummer version of uh, I Will Follow yeah. You by Leaky Lee <laughs> that happened in like episode four. And then this time we get a bummer version of Twist and Shout. Mm-hmm. That is kind of interesting. I like when... Yeah. TV shows. It's fun. It's fun. It's Grey's Anatomy. It's, it's fun, fun touch. I don't think every bummer version works. <laughs> That's fair. I have to admit, I rolled my eyes a little bit about twist, the slow twist and shout. Yeah. I mean, but, I was, yeah. yeah. I mean, hearing twist and shout again, a nice sort of callback. I sort of like the circular nature of the mm-hmm. season and mm-hmm. that we started where we, be, we ended where we began. We're back in Salal. Mm-hmm. Twist and shout is playing again in you know, it's all sort of like we're back at the four four. And then I was like, twist and shout. Like, maybe I'm going too far and too like, woo woo. But I guess it's twist and that's a yep, circle uh-huh. and there's a spiral. Uh, right, and maybe right. that's part of the Oh, we didn't even talk. Did Clark literally says time is a flat circle. <laughs> he does. Wait, yes, he oh, does. Right. <laughs> when he says, well, I mean, when he said that, I yelped. <laughs> I thought that moment was perhaps both too on the nose and just an on the nose enough. You know? I agree. Yeah. I think yeah. that it, it wasn't somehow, too much. it was, no, it was Schrodinger's quote. Like, yeah. I was, yeah. I was rolling my eyes, but I was also like, he said the line. Like, yeah. 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 And also, uh, it, the way that that character was written, I believed he would say that. On, yeah, on, well, because you know, he, he is the, he is the Matthew McConaughey character, except for now the villain, like the right. overt villain. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I have to confess that this whole time I thought he was played by Hamish Linklater. And then when he started <laughs> speaking, I was like, that's not Hamish Linklater. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Hamish Linklater. Yeah. And that's why I kept thinking, and not when we recorded this, but I kept being like, well, surely he'll become a big character. Because why would Hamish Linklater <laughs> be on this show? <laughs> it's the mayor of Easttown brain. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Night country has got you now. <laughs> oh, no. Still Watching will be back in just a moment, and when we return, a conversation with Jodie Foster about the ending of True Detective Night Country. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. 
And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by authenticity guarantee. Whether it's a knit bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewelry, or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic. Every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay authenticity guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. Okay, wow. Six hours later, we're at the end of the road of true detective and there's a lot to process there's a lot to talk about there is and there is one well there there are a few people i guess that we could talk to there's when we're one talking that I really want about to talk this to. whole journey but yes there's one that we've been dying to talk to and her name is Jodie Foster and she is a two-time oscar winner she is joining our podcast that's crazy which is really crazy yeah, Jodie Foster doing TV, Jodie Foster doing podcasts. I mean, this is a, a new Jodie Foster, and I love it. <laughs> Brave new world. And I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to talk to her about this really fascinating show that she, you know, produced. And we got a little Clary Starling, I think, back oh, totally. in this. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk all about that with Jodie. Enjoy that conversation. Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope that it's uh, a relief to be able to talk about the entire series at this point. Have you felt like you've been keeping a secret for a long time? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and, you know, we love it so much. And honestly, as you know, because you've seen it all, episode six is so magnificent mm-hmm. that I'm just going like, wait, wait, wait till you get to the end. <laughs> no. When you first got the script, did you see what was coming? Did you see who the killers were or did it surprise you? Uh, well, you know, you, you say yes based on one script, which is the <laughs> pilot, and then there's a little bit of a log line of, you know, summaries about what pop potentially could happen in episodes two, three, four, five, and six. The episode five and six are like, maybe. So <laughs> you just, you, it's sort of a leap of faith. I think that's the way it works here. And um, having met Issa Lopez, read, reading her draft, knowing what a great writer she was and what a an extraordinary intelligent, amazing, emotionally connected person that she was. Uh, I was like, oh, I want to work with her. Mm-hmm. So we did change the character quite a bit. And I think that changed other episodes as they went forward. Can you talk a little bit about how Danvers evolved from that initial pilot to kind of the show that we've seen? Yeah, um, the initial pilot Danvers was, I don't want to say she was a nice person, but I think she was, <laughs> I think 
I think she, we really followed her. I think she was grieving and recently grieving because she's younger, written younger than me and um, was, you know, trying to make sense of her life and very emotional. And I just felt like the most important thing was to make sure that Navarro's character was central and that that was the central voice and the central journey of the show. And we sort of re-engineered Danvers backwards and said, okay, how can we support that? What's the, what's the opposite way in a way to support uh, Navarro's, Navarro's journey? And sometimes that seems like, why would you do that? Why would you? But um, this is a film rather than say a series that will go on for, you know, years and years and years. And it has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And we really serve the narrative. For us, it was really clear that, that you know, we wanted to support Navarro's story as much as possible. Uh, on that note, I mean, you told our colleague Joy Press that uh, Danvers is kind of an uh, Alaskan Karen, and we definitely see that yeah. at the beginning. Alaskan Karen, even better. <laughs> That's even better. Yeah. A good yeah. portmanteau. So, yeah, how, how do you think that she kind of changes and evolves over these six episodes from, like, that initial, you know, at the beginning we see her kind of yeah, being kind of racist, being... Yeah. You know, look, do people change radically? Most people change <laughs> incrementally in mm. tiny amounts. I mean, I think that what we learn from her is that all of that rage and bitterness and inability, uh, inability to focus, right? Because she's sort of distracted in the beginning, distracting herself in the beginning, either with Tinder or with fantasy football <laughs> or, you know, whatever. We we want to f- drill down and find out what, why is that happening? Why is this, why can't this person connect with their daughter and our stepdaughter and why, um, what fears is that masking? And I think that's the work of the show is to sort of open up the Pandora's box by the end and really understand why, why she is the way that she is, but especially with an older person, you know, it's not like a 20 year old who's going to change. You're, you're looking at an older person who's stuck in their ways and who's going to, who's been operating with screensavers you know, for and and in survival mode for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, then, what at what point in the uh, in the True Detective production process was the final script written? That like you had filming begun already? Yeah, luckily, okay. uh, Issa had written all the episodes, and you know, with and and with all the help from the room and all that stuff, had written all the episodes, and then it was just a question of changes. Mm-hmm. You know, and you do changes throughout with notes from the studio and with notes from the producers and. We, we we did film not in continuity, so we were filming maybe the end of the show in the beginning and the middle of the show at the end. Like, mm-hmm. we just had to shoot out locations because the locations were so difficult, right. right, because of the snow and all that stuff. So it's a big jigsaw puzzle that you hopefully manage to mostly figure out before you step into the shoes of production. But um, Issa was very busy, so she mm-hmm. had to... You know, she had to rewrite stuff as we went and um, talk to the studios every day and see what was working and what wasn't working. And when you found out that it was, you know, this collective of Native women, that they are the ones who are responsible for the main murder. I mean, how did, how did you how did you respond to that? That's the I mean, when I got the first draft of episode six in, I think I called her and just hollered and <laughs> screamed because it was so great. I mean, it's just so great. Um, it's my favorite episode. Um, I never saw it coming mm. as I, as we read through each script, we, we all said to ourselves like, wow, we really don't see it coming. Um, and I think that's the beauty of it is that it sort of throws a mirror at us as an audience of saying like all these women were there all along 
how is it possible that they were in, invisible to you? Mm-hmm. And um, that's really the story of marginalized people and their lives is that they are there in front of you. They are living in front of you. There are voices in front of you that go unnoticed or uncared for or unacknowledged. And when you go back in time and you think of all, because you do recognize the women from various different points in the movie, you go back in time and realize like, oh, that was the, you know, the woman who was cleaning things up in the in the hospital. And that was the woman who was delivering the ashes at the, at the morgue. And it suddenly pieces together your own lack of accountability mm-hmm. and, and, and your own implicit bias. I think that we're, and you know, we have been engineered by media in some ways to erase uh, marginalized voices. So it's great. It, it makes the point and it's thrilling. Yeah. Watching Danvers go from Alaska Karen to keeping this these native women's secret and to sort of creating this forming this bond with them was really unexpected and very thrilling yeah i mean you know part of part of danvers's character which we can't ignore is that she's been on the front line for a long time as a police officer and that's a hard world out there you know there's people are getting killed and very often women are being killed by friends of theirs by the men in the community that they've grown up with um, that are also a part of the community. So it's, it is a very complicated, uh, very, very complicated and painful part of rural life, uh, not just in the United States, not just in the upper, you know, North, Northern Alaska, but also in Latin America and all, all over the world that, that, um, missing and, and murdered women is, is such a huge part of the heartbreak of marginalized societies. It must have been a very difficult shoot in a lot of ways, you know, thematically and also just physically. You're in the dark, you're in the cold. Um, what was this this last episode? You know, you're falling into the ice. You're uh, you're, you're in, in the water again. It's yeah, crazy. T- tell us about filming this last episode and what the what the trickiest moments were. Yeah, that was hard. I kept asking because we actually shot that like the last few days of shooting, mostly because they hadn't figured it out yet. Like, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. how are we going to do that? How are we going to do the falling through the ice? I kept <laughs> saying that, I think, from week one. Hey, by the way, have we figured out how we're going to do the falling <laughs> through the ice? You know? Yeah. Um, we all knew from experience that it was going to have to be a tank. Mm. Um, we're going to have to build a tank because there was no way, obviously, that you could ever shoot in real ice mm-hmm. and be able to control that or the light. Mm. Uh, or any number of things. So it was just a question of how, what it was that we had to build. And um, for me, that was the, you know, it was a big challenge in the show for me because um, I'm wearing coats, but I had to have a wetsuit on and it had to be weighted in order for me to be able to fall and to kind of do this without popping up to the top. But the problem was, is that, of course, it's dark. I can't wear glasses. Mm. <laughs> I'm completely blind. And the surface had to have the ice there. So that's the ice is not ice. It's like a plastic, you know, it's a there are pieces of things that I can't get through. So mm. the only way to get to the top is a very small, narrow little window, which I can't see. And I can't get myself up because I'm weighted. Uh. So heavily weighted. So we had to have, so I did have a free diver that we worked with uh, a little bit before shooting and, you know, teaching how to breathe properly so you have the maximum oxygen in your lungs. But he had to, you know, as soon as they basically said cut, he had to rush in and grab me and pull me up to the surface because there was no way I could get up to the surface on my own. So 
Yeah, that was scary. Yeah, that sounds very dangerous and very scary. <laughs> yeah, I spoke to Kaylee and she mentioned, you know, doing some doing her own stunts and her own fights and everything because she's a boxer. But I mean, come as from your perspective, where you were also like, I'm game, like, let's do this or uh, were you nervous? Yeah, I mean, there's certain things. I think that, first of all, our stunt people were amazing from England. They were just amazing and so into it. Like they were so into it and so, so enthusiastic and great. They recognize I also have like, you know, a torn ACL from skiing and stuff. So they recognize there were things that they, I definitely shouldn't do, you know. So <laughs> you will notice, you know, Kaylee like falls through a thing and lands on her back and then like all this stuff. And then somewhere in the background, I sort of delicately come down. You know, they, 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 they take care of me. They take care of me. As they should. Can, can you talk a little bit about working with Kaylee? I mean, she does such a phenomenal job, but she's sort of a new to the acting profession and you're, you're such a veteran. What was that like working with someone so fresh? Oh, I just love her so much. Um, nobody works harder than Kaylee. Um, she's She's got all of that discipline, that athlete's discipline um, she's willing to do something over and over and over again before she gets it right and give every single time 100%, which I think really is, it's a mindset, right? It's so much more about a mindset than anything else. She had a really, really, really tough, I mean, that's a tough shoot for her. She's on every single day and she had a lot of work that she had to do as an actor, uh, but also, you know, training and we worked on weekends very often doing rehearsals on Saturdays. So she really only got one day off on Sunday and and that was uh, in the dark, you know? <laughs> I think it was really tough. I think the, the toughest thing on her really was just being away from home and being away from friends for so long. Seven months is a long time. And as much as we loved Reykjavik, you know, you miss your mom and, you know, yeah. you miss your dog. She had a puppy. They got mm. a puppy while she was away and Aww. she could see pictures of the Aww. puppy. <laughs> but having never met the puppy... <laughs> um, wow. so I think tough. that was hard on her but I I just adore her and she's I'm I'm in awe of her I mean she she did such an amazing job she really holds the screen it's like a magic trick that she has that she just she's on screen and you just can't look at anything else still watching we'll be back in just a moment and when we return more with Jodie Foster on True Detective I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) How do you interpret the very ending where we see Danvers and Navarro together? I mean, there's a little, there's potential ambiguity, like maybe she's a, maybe one of them's a ghost, maybe, (laughs) who knows, a dentist, nobody ever really leaves. Yeah, what's, what was your take on that? Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. I'm not going to have a take. I mean, I think it could be any of those things. Um, 
I believe that, I mean, you know, knowing the characters the way I do, I feel like they are destined to struggle for their whole lives. And I think especially Kaylee's character, she is between two worlds. So she's not only between as a biracial person, you know, in between two cultures, um, being in the police force, but also really identifying with uh, the victims and the people that are in the community. But she also lives between the world of the dead and the world of the living in a way. And that's sort of her destiny is to always be in limbo and always be having to struggle to figure out which side she belongs on. Mm. So I guess I like to think that that will always be true of her uh, as she lives her life, that she will be struggling about which side she belongs on. Yeah, we were we were sort of debating whether it's kind of a bleak ending or a hopeful one. And I guess you're saying it's sort of right there in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's hopeful. I think it's bittersweet, which is, um, I mean, it's this, in, it's weirdly, it's the same thing as Silence of the Lambs, weirdly, which is, you know, it was Clarice's destiny to be that archetypal character who will always be hearing the, the bleeding of the lambs, you know, and will always be out there trying to protect and save women that look just like her. Mm. And that never ends, that kind of fate. Uh, and, I, you know, there is a sort of tragic quality to this show and to True Detective in going back to uh, season one. There's, they, both of them are resigned that their messed up parts are probably not going to change, you know, that they have this destiny, like they can't help it. They're just going to go back and sadly do the same thing that they did before that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And um, do you feel like that's, that's sort of a, a tragic, uh, in the good sense of the word, sort of Greek tragic mm -hmm. way that things go? Uh, that, it's really interesting that you drew a parallel between Clarice Starling and um, Navarro, Kaylee's uh, character, because we sort of drew a parallel between Clarice and Peter, right, as sort of the upstart, oh. you know, fresh new face yeah. on the force. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did, does that ring true at all, or were we so off base? Yeah, I think it does. Actually, sure. Why not? Um, and so interesting that he's a guy and I'm a girl. You know. Um, and that, that, that still works, you know, that the protege, what the idea of protege is that there's a, a bond and an intimacy between the protege relationship and the mentee relationship or the, the mentor and the mentee relationship. And, uh, there's something terrible about the fact that your mentor is forcing you in some ways to isolate yourself from your real life isolate yourself from the real world because you can't do the job well unless you do. But then is that what you're hoping for them? You know, you're hoping for them to be isolated from the real world. I think that that's a, there is a parallel there. Yeah. And that he has to, you know, literally, you know, kill his father in order to kind of become his own man, which yeah. I guess is yeah. sort of the oldest story, but. Yeah. The oldest story in the world. Yeah. You don't get any more Greek tragedy than that. <laughs> yeah. um, that moment for me was so, so deep and difficult, right? Where um, John Hawk's character dies at the hands of his son. And uh, we agonized about that more than anything else in the entire show. You know, how it should be done, where it should be done, what should be said, what shouldn't be said, who reacts a certain way. I think that was probably the hardest hurdle we ever had to get over. And then once we found it, we were like, yes. Um, what were the alternate versions? Were there versions in which uh, like Danvers or Navarro were the ones to pull the trigger? No. Not really. I think we always knew that that was the right thing, but we were like, how do we make it 
feel truthful and what would be the real reaction and does he fear that that his dad is going to come in and kill uh and kill Danvers it had to be an impulse right because you don't do that without it being impulsive and yet everything that Danvers is about is thinking not feeling so she had to continually be telling him think don't let your feelings get in the way think about what the right path is do the you know use your brain that is sadly Danvers' superpower, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Navarro's the opposite. Navarro is all instinct. And that's why they make such a good team. It was interesting what you were saying before about how the two of them are kind of destined to be, you know, making the same mistakes over and over because it does recall you know, the most famous true detective quote, time is a flat circle. <laughs> and that's a quote that we see in this episode. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how Issa worked that into the episode and what it was like filming that scene? Uh, the really, Issa was, you know, Issa's a huge fan of the show and is a great movie fan, you know, so she uh, understands references and she's seen every film, she, you know, ever made. So it was important to her to pay homage to uh, that that first season, I mean, and the whole, you know, as as the anthology goes, we all pay homage to the first season. You know, sometimes you think of the time as a flat circle really as just sort of Matthew McConaughey's character, kind of philosophical, you know, uh, going on one of his out-of-body philosophical things. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, I think it is, is sort of part of what we know about character that, characters repeat themselves you know they repeat parts of their process that comes from their childhoods and from their various wounds in life um that you can't escape that um and that's you know that's that's just once again tragedy 101 Mm -hmm. it does seem sort of funny though i feel like danvers is kind of frustrated when he says that because it sort of sounds like this metaphysical like very not her world like you said she is very like practical practical yeah yeah i mean she's practical because she's afraid Mm -hmm. she doesn't trust anything else and she is afraid that if she opens to the possibility of instinct that it'll hurt because it does uh being human and having feelings and being attached and continuing to love people is painful. And um, she's just, that's that's her one motivation is, you know, how do I avoid pain? Mm-hmm. We see that so so brilliantly um, with the, the Holden subplot. And when you're, you know, you're sort of at death's door talking to Navarro and you find you you reopen that wound. And the show, Issa, does a, it's really a sort of just gestured at. It's not overly explained exactly what happened and whatnot. Can you talk about that? that arc and, and that part of the story. Yeah, we, we had a lot of discussions back and forth about like, you know, how much do we go into about the past? And we all have, we know the story. So we know what happened. Um, how much do we go, go into the past? And how much do we talk about Jake? So her ex-husband and in what capacity do we talk about Jake? And why is it that she doesn't grieve Jake? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that she just grieves Holden? Is it because Jake did something terrible? Is it because Jake was a drunk driver, you know, any number of things that it could be. And um, some of that will remain mysterious to the audience, but I think they can still feel the pain behind it. The pain of being in that relationship, for example, with her ex-husband and, and she didn't want to have kids. She was too old to have kids, but they decided to anyway. 
and they were an on again, off again. They were, you know, breaking up because she's difficult. We know she's difficult. So yeah, I'd break up with her too. She's difficult. Um, and we also know that you don't grieve people the same. And there are some relationships, not that you get over, but that have closure. And there are some relationships where it's impossible to find closure. And maybe that comes from need. You know, it's hard to let go of your mom if you're still wrapped up in your mom's appreciation of what you do. And if you don't know how to pay a bill and your mom person to pay a bill or like some of that is wrapped up in need. And for whatever reason, she has not been able to kind of metabolize Holden's passing. There are unanswered questions there about responsibility and about unsaid things, you know, about not having had the opportunity to, to metabolize that, which I think is very true of people with young children that go because they haven't fulfilled their relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on, on a lighter note, um, a recurring theme of the season is how many people in Ennis uh, Danvers has slept with, which is such like a funny, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a funny, it's like a running, town, you know? running joke. Yeah. Um, tell, tell us about that aspect of it. I mean, did you, did you enjoy it? It seems like you guys are always having fun on screen when we find another one. Yeah. I mean, I like being the brunt of the joke. It's really at <laughs> It's at Danvers' expense, you know, which I think is just great that she's, and she's sort of unremorseful about it. It's like, yeah. what do you expect me to do? Who cares? What do I care? <laughs> There's you nothing know. else to do. It's dark yeah. all the time. Right, right. And sort of rolling her eyes at everybody's pearl clutching, <laughs> uh, which I just thought was fresh and fun and complex. Uh, that is one thing that Issa really is able to do. And not surprisingly, I think it's very unusual to see such fully fleshed, complex female characters that have lots of contradictions. That's what happens when you have a woman director writer, mm-hmm. right? The reality of women's lives, the complexity of women's lives is finally seen on screen. And we're just not used to seeing women that way because honestly, we're very used to seeing our voices and our characters being drawn by men. I mean, I used to say this, like, it just amazes me Throughout my lifetime, the amount of scripts that I would get where the entire motivation for the character was almost always she was raped. Mm. Like, it's amazing to me. Like, you guys couldn't think of anything else? Mm -hmm. You guys can't imagine that a woman would have deep flaws or deep issues or be visited by trauma other than that? Like, that's it? That's like the only one? Well, and that's still and, so true. That's still true so frequently for female characters, especially yeah. on TV, on like prestige shows. Yeah, it's annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm I'm not one who's, and I, I will point it out, you know, it's just not, it's nobody's fault, I think, because a lot of directors are not taught to inhabit the characters of women. Somehow they can manage to inhabit the characters of their male characters, but it's, hard for men to inhabit the bodies of women and say, oh, I'm, I'm inhabiting the body. What do I see? What do I feel? What does that look like? <laughs> mm. You know, they're, they're just not used to doing it. So they don't have uh, an idea of what that feels like. And women have to, right? We have to inhabit everybody. Yes. Like our kids and other people and people that don't look like that. We have to do that all the time. If you're a writer or you're a director, you know, you're continually, you have to be able to ask questions of people that don't look like you, that don't have your experience. 
Sounds like we need more female directors. <laughs> <laughs> As we kind of wrap up, what do you what do you hope is kind of, you know, the the legacy of this season? What do you want people to take away from it? Well, I'm so proud of it. I mean, I'm just so happy to be a part of something. Like I that's that's really been um the great gift of being an older person, being in your 60s is you have to recognize that it's not your time. You had your time. Now I get to support other people's time and I get to be the one who has some kind of wisdom. I don't know what kind of wisdom I have. I mean, <laughs> you know, the wisdom of like, chill out. It's all going to be okay. Um, but uh, I am really excited about people discovering a different community in the United States that they don't see very often and hearing voices that they don't see centered and really having to to walk in the shoes of Native people's lives and as a centered characters. I think that's that's really exciting. And even though there's been a lot of representation in the last couple of years, really, with Native people, like, representation is okay. But that's like saying, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's not everything. Yeah, just totally. To see, you, you, it's, it's not okay to just see faces and then feel, pat yourself on the back and say, oh, we, we know, we know what's, what their lives are like. That's, mm -hmm. that's not how it works. You actually have to center the characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And show that, yeah, they're not a monolith. There's mm -hmm. so many different sorts of stories. Yeah. Yeah. And for us, it's like, also what's sort of interesting, I love this about the writer as well, is like, you kind of don't know who's native and who isn't, right? In some, in some moments you're like, oh, well, I, I yeah, okay. But when you're looking at the population of this area in North Alaska, it's, it's about 75 to 80% native. But what does that mean? There are, not everybody's the same, you know, just because they're Inupiaq doesn't mean or they have an Inupiaq tradition. There's all sorts of ways of having that ancestry. It's really refreshing to see, um, to spend so much time with uh, a swath of people that we don't normally get to spend time with on screen. Uh, well, yeah, that are living a life we can't even imagine. I mean, can you imagine living a life where there's no roads? Like, there's almost no roads into oh. Nome and into, Nor into Arctic Circle. So everything you get comes in on a boat. Like, you got to wait months. Mm. If you want a charger, a phone charger, months. <laughs> months. I couldn't live that um, Or a new piece of equipment. or And then to have, you know, the long days in the summer and then the short uh, the 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 long nights in the winter, or um, having to supplement your whole food system right with seal and walrus and uh, snow crabs, and because Oreos cost thirty bucks a pot, unbelievable. So, yeah, so it's 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 just a different life, I think, than we understand. As it's it's an American life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So great. Bye. Thank you. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. When we return, we're going to figure out which host got the most guesses right and who wins. It's me. <laughs> She's awake. She's awake. <laughs> Hillary's awake. <laughs> All right, so it's time now. We've been making predictions every episode, um, so we, you know, have a, a pretty vast array over five episodes of who we think did it. Chris was high on his polar bear theory for a while. <laughs> There's an argument to be made. I, I was high on my gas theory for a while. 
I still think sort of it yeah. was environmental. But I think that, you know, so so last week I had stuck with gas and that, that Annie Kay actually died from gas, but she was, they staged it like a murder so because they didn't want environmental stuff to come out. Um, well, if the gas weren't so important to the scientists that killed her, yeah. then maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, then maybe she'd be alive. Look, uh, I got to tell you. There is no gas. <laughs> so no, Richard. there's no I, the gas thing is wrong. I, I'm sorry, Richard. I do yeah. think you have to get zero points. Uh, no, I get zero points. Chris, you mentioned Connolly as Not the Con- killer of Annie Kay. Uh, you mentioned Kate being involved in that. Hillary, not quite right. But <laughs> both yeah. of you kind of envisioned someone local to the town getting revenge, mm-hmm. and you were both right on that front. We so I kind of think you guys win. We didn't, yeah. We, we sort didn't. of split the difference, because I said uh, indigenous, I said the indigenous community, but I said right. the wrong faction of the yes. indigenous right. community. You, yes, you and assumed you, it would be men. And you said women. Whoa, wow. Yes. <laughs> but but I said women. white women. The doctor is his <laughs> mother, says, Chris. That says a lot about both of us. <laughs> he was standing on a block of ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, but I do also want to shout us back to episode one predictions, because... You know what? I said that it's always the boyfriend for you Annie Kay, and it was the boyfriend. And technically, he was the one who— He was literally the one who did the final murder. Who did the—so I do I do think in this tiebreaker, nail-biter <laughs> of a competition, I do think you get the edge for uh, that. I do—I ultimately do. I'm so proud. I'll cede it to you. This is really a victory for all women. Um, <laughs> I want to— <laughs> Please take the floor. <laughs> Speak for all women, please. <laughs> That's what we love to do. <laughs> so we will be buying Hillary an icy or Slurpee. Yes, ices are actually choosing. disgusting. Uh, um, so oh, I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna pass You're because gonna pass. I'm a no I'm a 35 year old woman. I don't want I don't want that in my <laughs> life. Right. Um, I'll, just, I'll just put some white wine in a freezer. But, <laughs> you know, green is, good. That is uh, rose coated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so looking looking past this season of True Detective into a possible future for the franchise. First of all, do we see a future for True Detective? There are so many more crime dramas than there were when True Detective first emerged in 2015. It's become, you know, it's it's a saturated market, especially for star-driven projects like this on prestige streamers and prestige networks. Um, do you think that this season has kind of breathed life into this franchise again? Does it feel like True Detective still has its own kind of brand within this bigger sea of crime shows? I do. I do think so, because while we saw, we keep talking about Mare of Easttown, I think that's probably the best corollary in terms of, like, a big budget, a newer, it's big budget, it's HBO, it's prestige it has all of the trappings, but it does ultimately feel a little bit different because, and this isn't a dig at Mare of Easttown, it felt a little bit more procedurally, it feels a little bit more of that vein, whereas this, at least the season, uh, leaned more into uh, the supernatural, into sort it of bigger felt, yeah, questions. In Mare, you really want to know the answer to the who did the yes. murder. I feel like in this, you cared less. Yeah, it was less, it was, yeah, and I it's totally more, agree It's more that. about Navarro and Danvers. Yeah, and them getting through their trauma. And we had maybe less specific, clear-cut answers to certain questions in this than we got in A Mare of Easttown. So for me, I, uh, I, I like true crime. I like the genre. I... I thought this was a, uh, it's hard for me to say return to form as I didn't watch seasons two and three, but I think it justified its existence. Mm -hmm. And I would be curious to see what a different 
Though I would say it'd be maybe fun to get a different person to do the next season and take it in a completely different I, direction. I think that could be really cool. I think new locations, I think, take a little page from White Lotus. Right. Like, like I think, I, I mean, that, the the first three seasons were all different locations too, but I think that not they as were, different they were less other, distinct yeah. from one another. Yeah. And I think this is so far afield. I'm not saying that the next season has to be set in the Mojave Desert or whatever, <laughs> but like, you know. Well, that actually was season two. Yes, that kind of was season two. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But no, uh, no, we're not going to like the rainforest. Right. Yeah. So I think that could be an interesting thing. But yeah, I, I just, I think that the, the brand recognition is strong. I mean, to be cynical about it, that if you find an, a, a writer who wants to write an interesting six episode murder mystery under the true detective umbrella, I think as long as there are certain things, certain tones, certain thematic stuff like the spiral and the time is a flat circle, as long as it feels somewhat bound by the vague world of true detective, there's so much room to play in. And mm-hmm. I think that, that that's encouraging. And I think that's the kind of TV I want to see more of. And then you go from six episodes to four to three three to two and then you were making movies again. <laughs> then, yeah, then we might even have a movie. Wouldn't that be fun? I was like, where are you like, going? I don't know, this? a detective murder mystery movie, you know? <laughs> uh, it's yeah, never Kenneth, been done before. Kenneth Branagh is making them right now. Oh, well, uh, that's true, I suppose, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I think that this did a good job of both being similar enough to the Nick Pizzolatto seasons while carving out its own niche and... And yeah, like showing the ways in which this brand, like for lack of a better word, can uh, can continue and can broaden its scope. So more True Detective, please. And more um, from Issa Lopez, I want to say. Yeah, also. I would love to see it. Yeah, yeah. Really. Because it's really rare, I think, to, you know, she's making her first project in English. Like, it's really rare to have somebody, their first thing on American television, just be this, like, well structured and thought out and you know it's yeah. it's a tricky tonal mix and it's mm-hmm. really well beautiful it's really beautifully shot and yeah I, I mean i just i really want to know what else what other stories she wants to tell yeah lots of like gate. interesting poetic language and like which is you know part of the true detective brand obviously but i think it also feels distinctly of her voice it did not sound like pizzolato to no. me mm. yeah absolutely i hope that this is like her calling card now and she gets her blank check for her next yeah thing. i want i want to know like when she's not working uh, like under the auspices of an already existing show like what's she gonna make maybe we'll cover it on this very podcast <laughs> well that does it for this episode of still watching now the true detective is over don't worry we still have a special bonus episode about True Detective Brewing. We're talking to showrunner Issa Lopez next week. We have a lot of questions. Yeah. We want to know about the tongue. Want to know about the tongue, yeah. her love of oranges. <laughs> we want to know uh, how how supernatural the supernatural really is. We want to know about filming in those ice caves. Yeah. I want to know where she gets her ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I do. <laughs> like, this is an intricate thing to put together, and and she she did it. So I'm. Yeah. I'm we want to know how she thinks that the men the Dietloff Pass actually died. Yeah. Oh, that's first question. Uh, yeah, we got to ask. Yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. we'll spend the whole hour on that. I don't know. <laughs> Was there a tongue involved in that incident? We know. We don't um, have to listen. But yeah, so we're going to talk to her. We're going to get the answers. Um, and in the meantime, Richard, uh, You can find me on social media as ever. I'm at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on social media at Chris Trist. And I'm at Hillabuster. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Jake Loomis. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week with a special bonus episode talking to showrunner Issa Lopez. See you soon. 
You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.